Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Luke? Thank God. This is going to be good. We're going to talk a little bit about the, um, the first nativity, the first advent. We'll talk a little bit about the shepherds and also about the setup that Mary and Joseph were in. Um, there's some things that tradition has just kind of taught us about um, that we just kind of picked up about, you know, what the nativity might have looked like, what that first night might have looked like. And some of those things, as many traditions are, just like playing the game of telephone, things get kind of messed up down the road, and we come up with certain assumptions. Um, and we're going to hear a few things this morning that hopefully won't wreck your nativity scene. You can still have your nativity scene. Um, won't wreck the Christmas play as much, but might change your, your outlook on what, what happened that morning I, or that evening. I want you to know in all of these things, whenever you read the Bible, it's so important that you pick it up knowing that the people you're reading about were people just like you. Because if you don't do that, what you end up doing is you end up making them into superheroes that had super abilities and and you lower the bar for yourself, and you just say, well, they could do that. Moses could do that because he was this, or, or you know, uh, Peter could do that because he was this, or, you know, Paul, and, and you end up saying, well, nothing real, I mean, I, I can't do anything like that because I'm, I'm not like them. They're, they're Bible characters. But the Bible says in the book of James, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And when he prayed, rain stopped. And when he prayed again, rain came. He, well, his point is, his point is Elijah was not a super a superman. He was a man with a nature like ours, but his prayers had much effect because he prayed in faith. So in the same sense, when we read these stories, it's so good for us to be able to read them again with fresh eyes and remember these are people. This is a young teenage mother in Mary that, that is all of a sudden says she's going to have a child and she's not married and she's in a society that doesn't look so fondly on um, unwed mothers, uh, you know, un, unwed girls having babies. That wasn't, a, wasn't something that went well. But by the time they got, as you know, by the time they got to Bethlehem, they were married. So that wasn't an issue then. Joseph took Mary as his wife. He kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born, which is important because he made sure, as the angel instructed him, that this was very clearly not a work of man, but a work of God. That one of the things we were talking about this morning uh, as we were preparing for the service, we were talking about the fact, uh, we were talking about some lyrics, and talking about the fact that it's, it's part of our Christian uh, foundation uh, that Jesus was, yes, born of a virgin. He was not born of the will of man. The Bible says, neither were we. We weren't born of the will of man, nor of flesh and blood, but by the will of God. And this is important. Jesus was not born because two people loved each other very much, even though that's nice. He was born because God, um, God did what, a, a miraculous thing, and it only happened once in history. I don't care what people say. There's only one immaculate conception. And if anybody else uses that excuse, it's just an excuse. There's only one virgin birth. And uh, this is a big deal to us as believers because it shows us that God did the impossible. Not only that, not only that, but the first time that God ever mentioned a, a Savior coming, he mentioned it right in the garden. And he said something important to, uh, to the woman. He said, or about the woman, he said to the serpent, he said, this woman, her seed will crush your head. 
which doesn't make sense. Females, in all, all throughout nature and, and humanity, females don't have seed. That's the, that's, that's the men. But in the scripture here, it says your seed. And it's important to know that God put that baby in Mary. And there was indeed a virgin birth. And so Joseph left her a virgin until after uh, Jesus was born. Couldn't be disputed. You know what? And after that, she, of course, didn't stay a virgin. The Bible says that Jesus had brothers, and they went on had kids. But when Jesus was born, it was a divine miracle. Let's look in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 1, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So for those of you that don't know, he was the emperor of Rome at the time. In fact, he was the first real emperor of Rome. It came out, a decree went from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. In, in other words, all the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So here's where we've got a lot of our thoughts. We take this verse and we kind of translate it in our own uh, way of seeing it. And here's how I imagined it growing up. I imagined that they came into town, and I imagined a some, somehow ancient Middle Eastern Super 8 that had a no vacancy sign, and you go in, and you know, you always check. Even if there's a no vacancy sign, you go and check, you say, there's, there must be something. Right? There must be some room. And I always pictured that they went to the innkeeper, and he said, no, seriously, there's no room, you know? And they said, no, there must be, there must be a room. Oh, no vacancy. I mean, everybody comes, you know, nobody. You know, and, so, and so he said, oh, but I have a stable. And he, he took him to a stable somewhere. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is, um, it probably was a little bit different. First of all, the word for in here, there are two Greek words for in in the scriptures. There's one which applies more to an in that you could come, no matter who you were, pay for a space and, 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 and get a room. It doesn't matter who you were. Um, for instance, in the story where Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the Good Samaritan picked up that guy and he put him on, a, put him on his horse or whatever, on his donkey or mule, and took him and bought him a room in the inn, and he stayed there. That's a totally different word than this. This word can mean, can mean kind of a lodge, but more often it was used to be talk about like a guest room, a, a guest space. You have to understand, Joseph was of a, of a very important family. Joseph was of the royal line of David. Now Mary was also of the line of David, but not the royal line. Now that's important. Joseph was of the line of kings. And when he went back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem was the city of David. When Joey went back to Bethlehem, all he had to do was drop his name, his parent, his granddaddy, and all of a sudden, he's got his family lineage there. Anybody in that village would have found him a place to stay if they had room. It was a great insult to Middle Eastern people at the time, even to this day, for you to come into the village and not have a place to stay. It's a great insult for that to happen. Some people say, well, you know, I mean, was there a stigma because uh, Mary was unmarried? No, they didn't know these people. And they would have, of course, let them into their home. Here's something that, I, that you find out when you do a little bit of a study about it. And if you want to study this further, let me give you a book to read. 
There's a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes written by a guy named Kenneth Bailey who, who lived 60 years of his life in the Middle East. 40 of those years he was teaching uh, as a professor, uh, you know, as a doctor and professor uh, teaching in a Bible school. And it tells, it, it's, it's a wonderful explanation of how uh, this nativity probably would have played out in the actual uh, place that it was played out. A lot, of what, a lot of our facts about the nativity scene come from a, a novel, a, a, a fictional story that was written about 200 years after Jesus was born. It wasn't full of a lot of facts, and it had some factual errors. It was from a guy written by a Greek fellow, most likely, that didn't actually know the geography of, of Judea, didn't actually know. He, he called one area uh, a desert area, which is actually rich farmland, and so he just kind of made up some facts as he went along. But in reality, a lot of these homes, if you were very rich, if you had a very nice big mansion-like house, which people in Bethlehem probably didn't have, but you know, if you were really rich, you'd have a home and a separate place for the animals. But most people in that day and age didn't have that. Here's the cool thing. A lot of them you'd kind of start, a lot of the homes were built right into the rock, built right into caves. The back room was almost like a cave sometimes, and sometimes it was a built room. But you can understand why we talk sometimes about the stable being in a cave. Well, in reality, a lot of their homes, they shared a kind of a home with, your, with your, the few animals that you had. Here's what they'd do. A normal house would have a main space where everybody lived. Does that sound like fun to you? Everybody kind of lives in one area. Do you remember when Jesus said, when you light a, a, a lamp, you don't hide it under a bushel, but you, you put it on a lampstand, it gives light to everyone in the house? Well, we, that doesn't make sense to us because we live in homes with lots of rooms in them, right? Our homes have so many rooms that it makes no sense for you to have a lamp and it lights all the rooms. That doesn't make sense. But if you lived in a big open space where there's a big open space where everybody kind of stays, that lamp gives light to all the house. Well, often they'd have a guest room uh, in the scripture, sometimes it's called the prophet's quarters, which would be built on top of the roof or in addition to the side. That's where your friends and family out of town would come. And then you usually had a room at the back where your animals would come. Isn't that kind of weird? You, you kept the animals in the house. Well, you wouldn't want to leave your animals. Uh, you don't own a lot of land. You own this little patch. You don't want to leave your animals way out in the field where somebody could steal them. And plus, when it gets cold, those animals provide some nice heat. I can see that some of you are struggling with this concept. So let's talk about this. L- let me prove it to you. Okay, so in the book of Judges, do you remember Jeff- Jephthah? No. Okay, so he was a judge. He was a judge who did something good and something stupid. He did something good by conquering, trusting in God. He, he overcame. He did some really cool stuff in that area. And then he did something totally ridiculously stupid. He said, God, the first thing that comes, through my, comes over my threshold, through my door into my house, I will give it to you. Well, the stupid thing was, God never told him to do that. And the first thing that comes through his door is his daughter. Now, here's the other stupid thing. Just ask God. God, obviously, I made a stupid promise. I know it's probably not your will that I kill my daughter. He didn't go through the trouble of asking God that. He actually sacrificed his daughter. Terrible thing. Not God's plan at all. But why would you make a stupid promise like that? If only humans came into your house, why in the world would you be like, the first thing that comes in, let's hope it's the newspaper boy. You know, I mean, why? Because there was a very good chance that your animals would come in that door. And your time of night, when Jesus said, okay, Jesus said on the Sabbath, 
the, the Pharisees were accusing him for healing on the Sabbath. Jesus says, when on the Sabbath, you don't, he says, you untie your ox and you lead him out to water. You don't, I mean, even though it's the Sabbath, you go out and you let him have some water, you let him have some food, right? There's an Arabic translation in the ninth century that actually says it, that translates it really nice. And it says, your animals, which are in the house, you untie them, you let them out. They're not tied up outside. They're not tied up somewhere. They're in the house. And you, even on the Sabbath, you let them out of your house. Here's another example, just in case you're still on the edge. The witch of Endor, when Saul visited the witch of Endor, she killed a calf. Uh, 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 she killed some, some cattle. They had some beef that was in the house. The scripture actually says, took it out in the house. Didn't say she went to the field to get it. It was living in the house. And so they'd have this back room where these animals lived. And you'd have these mangers. Sometimes the mangers would be stone mangers that were not going to move. And sometimes they were wooden that you really could move. So these animals, so the mangers would be by in their space there, between them and you. And so in reality, when it says there was no room in the inn, what we could translate that as was there was no space in the guest room. By the time Joseph and Mary arrived, the space was full. But of course, they're not going to let them just go and stay in the street. So they say, come on, come into our house. And they have to sleep with the animals, but they, there's still space in there. You can sleep back there. There's room. And most likely when Mary would have had Jesus, what probably would have happened was the men all get out of the room. It was very important to them. Some of you men go, That's, that sounds nice to me. But the men would all leave and, and let this woman have her privacy as she gives birth. They probably would have had the baby in the main room, but later, later laid him in the manger. So I tell you all that, not just to mess with you or not just to prove, oh, yeah, I read a book. Um, but we tell you that to change a little bit of how you think about this because it's going to make sense when the shepherds come that Jesus was born in pretty humble circumstances. He was laid in pretty humble circumstances, but there was something about that that spoke to them. As Jesus went, and they said there was no room for them in this area, or no room we think of room like different rooms in the house, but this could better be translated. There was no space for them. You know, there was no room, like no space for them in the guest room. And it says in the same region, there were some shepherds. Here's another thing, if just for one more. Okay, just one more. Had the shepherds come, you've got to understand Middle Eastern hospitality. It would be a terrible insult to let a lady have a baby out in a barn somewhere. If the shepherds came and saw that, even though they were in poor little houses, they would say, come, come, no, no, you stay. My, our wives will take care of you. What, they let you just stay with the animals? No, our wives will take care of you. Yes, they stay with the animals, but they were in a home. So anyways, when the shepherds came, it says in the verse 8, the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. I imagine they would be. We picture angels a little bit different than they might have showed up. Right? Come on, I used to work at a Christian bookstore. I know what angels look like most of the time in commercial products. They're not scary. They're nice little, you know, sometimes they're fat little babies, which actually comes from a pagan tradition, pagan Cupid, and that's not a good thing. But, you know, or, they, you know, they, like I've said before, they're even little teddy bears with wings, which I always thought was just, terrifying that you'd have a bear with wings it is now the ultimate killing machine that can fly into the tree but let's give it to a baby that's cute um but anyways 
We had some good angels too. Hey, Logan. Uh, there's, some, there's some strong ones too. But you know, you carry what people want. But anyways, with those angels, if you see a little baby, fat, chubby, baby little angel, you're not immediately afraid. That wouldn't freak you out a little bit. Even some of those majestic with a nice halo, and they look kind of like you, except they're a little bit yellower, and they have a, and they have a ring over their head. That won't freak you out too much. But if you saw angels, the messengers of the Lord, this is not just the messengers, because the Bible says that later the host came. And, and we don't talk about that. We don't use the word host a lot like they did. But host meant the army, the army of angels. So these weren't just the messenger angels. These weren't the carrier pigeon angels. <laughs> these were the ones that fought some battles. Those would freak you out. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them, and that might be even more frightening, and they were terribly frightened. They weren't just frightened, they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, in other words, look, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. I want you to hear those words because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Good news of great joy. When he says, I bring you good news, that bring you good news is all one word. And it shows up 52 times in the New Testament to mean to preach the gospel. You know, sometimes we think when we preach the gospel, we're going through a track or we're going through a system. But you've got to know every time you preach the gospel, it's in the same way that the angels brought it. I bring you good news. I'm bringing you good news. And it will be for great joy, of great joy, and it will bring great joy. I love it when Philip brought good news to the people in Samaria. This word is used more than once in that, in that little story about him going to Samaria. And when he preached the good news, he brought good news to the people. What's good news? Good news is you were far from God. Your sin separated you from God. But Jesus has come to reunite you with God, to reconcile you to God through His own blood, through His death and resurrection. He has bought you back. That's good news. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, when Philip went to Samaria, there was great joy in the city. I like that, hey? Great joy in the city. The city was not filled with great joy because Philip brought a good band with him. The Philip was not, I mean, the city was not filled with great joy because they gave out free candy at the same time they preached. Nothing wrong with all that, but that's not what brings the joy. If you think that what brings the joy is, well, we'll, we'll go on a missions trip and we're just going to bring a bunch of gifts for kids and we're going to do a big light show, it'll be a big deal. We, yeah, bring some gifts, that's wonderful. But that's not what brings the great joy. Because gifts go away. Money goes away. I'll tell you, will never go away is that genuine new birth that's offered to you through Jesus Christ, the eternal life He offers. And so that... My friends, when that's preached, it brings great joy. And the angels came and said, I have, I, we bring you the gospel. We bring you good news. We're going to preach the gospel to you, which is great joy. For who? All the people. Something about the shepherds you may not know is that at the time there were rabbinical teachings. The rabbinical teachings are what the, the Jewish leaders and scholars added to the law. It's not what God wrote, it's not what God put down, but they added their own rules. As if there weren't enough rules, they added more. That's why when Jesus came, they were insulted like everything he did. 
They took the law and then they micromanaged it to make it even worse. So when he spits in the dirt, it becomes working on the Sabbath because spitting in dirt makes clay and making clay is the first step to making bricks and they made us make bricks in Egypt and you're working on the Sabbath. The disciples walk through a field and as they walk through, they eat some grain. But like any of us, you don't want to eat all the shell and everything, so they run it through their hands like this. They just run it through their hands to separate the whole from the actual good stuff, right? And the chaff goes away. But as they're doing this, uh-oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're working. You're doing harvest right there. You're separating the chaff from the, the wheat from... Oh, no! You see how ridiculous that is? Religion, dead religion without God. Is stupid. It makes you do stupid things. There was a lady in the 19th century, and this was not uncommon. One lady in particular um, was in a was very abusive relationship. Um, getting out of that relationship at that day and age was not an option. And so, I'm on 18th or 19th century. Anyways, she, getting out of that relationship is not an option, so here's what she does. She wants to commit suicide, but she knows that suicide is a sin. And at that time, they believed suicide was the only unforgivable sin because they believed that if you didn't have time to repent, you're going to hell. So suicide, you don't have any time to repent, right? So they figured if you didn't have time to confess after suicide because you, you, you're dead, that's your last action, you're going to hell. You didn't have time to get right. Well, that's based on some pretty bad theology, right? Dead religion makes you do stupid things. So here's what she does. But you know, this is, is weird. This is what she does. She says, well, I have to do something that I can have time to confess for. So I, I want to die. But if I kill myself, I'll go to hell. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill somebody else. If I kill somebody else, I have time to repent. And the government killed me. Now, does that sound ridiculous to you? It's going to get more ridiculous. She says, but I don't want to take life from Jared because what if he's not right with God? And I kill him, he goes to hell. So she says to herself, what can I do about that? And she did, and here's the thing. She's not the only person in this time period that thought this was a good idea. She says, I'll kill a baby. So I kill a baby or a child, they're in a state of grace. They'll go straight to heaven. So I'm actually doing that kid a favor because they get to go be with Jesus. Now, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. But this is what dead religion makes you do, stupid things. Now, unfortunately, that lady, she went through with it. And um, I can't tell you what happened to her at the end, but it's a sad story. In the same sense, the rabbinical laws did the same sort of thing. That, the reason that lady did all those things is because religion added to the scripture and added all these extra little rules and extra little things and made it impossible to come to God. In the same sense, the rabbinical laws that were added onto the Mosaic law, these little, these little side rules, Jesus said about them. He said, here's what you guys do. He told the Pharisees. He says, you stand in the gate to the kingdom. You don't go in and you don't let anyone else go in. Through all their little extra little rules, they kept people out. One of their rules was, I said all that to say this, one of their extra little rules was that shepherds were considered unclean. 
Shepherds were considered the lowest of the low, the bottom of society. So it's important to realize that when you look at the fact that the angel appeared to shepherds. Before anybody else, to shepherds. And what does he say to them? He says, I bring you good news, great joy for all people. And what's implied there? I'm going to tell you this good news, but I want you to tell some other people this good news. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. And the fact that he showed up first to shepherds hammered that point in. Guys, I'm not just showing up to the kings and the nobles and all these people. I'm showing up to what people consider the lowest of society. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Look what he says in verse 11. The angel says this, For today in the city of David, in other words, Bethlehem, there has been born for who? For you, a Savior. That's huge. He's born for you, the lowest of the low. He came for you. He came for all the people. Pick up your, pick up your frown. Get happy. He came for you. And it says he's born for you, a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? We lose some of this in the translation because you know the New Testament was written in Greek, but they, they didn't actually speak in Greek in this, in this section. It was just written that way after. But originally, this was in their language. And Christ was not Christ, it was the Messiah. That's what the word they use. It was, Christ is just the Greek way to say Messiah. Well, it's the English way to say the Greek way to say Messiah. The anointed one. You've got to understand that he doesn't just say this might be an important baby. He says this is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And he hasn't just been born to the important people. He was born to you, for you. He is the Messiah he is the Lord. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Basically a feeding trough. Isn't that an important thing? You'll find this baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. To hammer it in, shepherds. That Jesus came to the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. He came to all people. He's going to be born, not in a fancy house, but in a house like yours. He came. He's going to spend the night with people like you. He's born in a feeding trough, something you understand. He didn't come to a palace. He came directly to them where they lived and said, hey, this is for you. You'll find him there. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. So we think of the, that the angel's job is just to sing. Their, their job is to do Christmas carols. When we do the nativity scene, they just go, you know, and cute little kids with the angels. And that's cool, and we'll probably never stop doing that. That's awesome. But in reality... The fact that they said something, first of all, it doesn't say they sang anything. They were praising God. Now, maybe that included singing. I don't know. But all I know is this was the heavenly host. Host being the word for army. The army showed up and started praising God. That might freak you out. And they were saying, 
So they weren't singing it. They were saying it. Does, nothing wrong with singing. I love singing. It's biblical to sing. But it says here they were saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, so in the highest, there's glo- we, we give glory to God. And on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Peace among men with whom He is pleased. Verse 15. Came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then, and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the babies he laid in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, so there were people there at the time, right? Because Jesus is in a place full of people. And all who heard it wondered at all the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back. And what were they doing? Glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Can you glorify and praise God silently? No, there's not an example in the Bible where you do that. Mm, Praise the Lord. I'm doing it in my head. I used to pull that trick when I, was, when I was younger. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm praising God in my head. Fooey on that. No, you're not. Glorifying and praising God. They were talking to one another, and I'm sure they grabbed some people in the town and said, you got to know what happened. When they got there, they told everybody what happened. You know, these are the shepherds, like I said, the lowest of the low, and they come in telling a crazy story about UFOs. Right? Unidentified flying objects. That would be the angels. They, they tell this crazy story about something they saw on a field. If we had a bunch of rednecks who came into our town and told us they saw some shiny things in the sky, would you listen to them? Maybe not. But there was something about the message that they carried that resonated with people. There was something that you couldn't just go away. Mary didn't just say, you're crazy, you're insane. She knew enough. This has been a wild enough ride already. She treasured them in their heart. And it says everybody there believed it and were excited about it. Now remember, the angels brought the good news. But what did they do after they brought it? They entrusted it to somebody. Now you go bring this good news. The shepherds didn't ponder it and treasure it in their heart. The shepherds went and told everybody about it. Maybe that's a good reason you go tell a bunch of shepherds. They'll go tell everybody. This is a good thing. And this is really what God designed us to do. The good news has been brought to us, has been preached to us. But it's never been meant to be something you just say, oh, it's my personal thing. I just, I just like it in personal time. It's good news. Guys, if this was a bad thing, I wouldn't want to share it either. But this is good news of great joy. And when the gospel is preached and received in faith, it comes with great joy. It brings baggage with it. The gospel brings baggage. Not bad baggage, but good baggage. It brings joy. It brings peace. It brings life with it. And we have to be so... I mean. I shouldn't say have to be because that sounds bad. But you need to get excited about the gospel you've been entrusted with. That it was brought to you with great joy and it needs to be spread with great joy. The shepherds realized something about this Messiah. 
Because maybe it was taught to them that Messiah would come, he'd be a great king, and he'd kick the Romans out. But in reality, the Messiah didn't come to Herod in the palace. The Messiah came to them and lived in their homes. The Messiah came, and when the shepherds showed up at the door, nobody turned them away. They were welcomed in. Nobody said, you're crazy. That's a stupid story. They celebrated with them. Unto us is born this day. Unto you a child is given. A child is born. He is your Savior. And He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Good news for everybody. Do you know that hasn't changed? This is good news of great joy for all people. We need to remember those three things. The gospel is good news. It brings great joy. It's for everybody. You say, well, not everybody gets excited when I tell them. Well, the Bible says that some people will stumble over the same thing you rejoiced over, some people trip over. That's not your fault. It's not your fault. Some people will trip right over Jesus, and it's not your fault. He says, Jesus said, they hated me when I was here. They'll hate you too sometimes. Don't be offended by that. But never lose that joy in your heart of how, how good this news is. And the news that we have is more than just Jesus came. The news that we have, especially as Gentiles, because I don't know if there's any full-blooded Jews in the room here, but as, uh, thank God in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, the Bible says. But especially for us Gentiles, it's a wonderful thing to know that when Jesus, Jesus didn't just come as a Messiah to Israel, he also came as a Savior to the world. For all people. And when he died, he didn't just carry some people's sin. He carried our sin. And when he died, he didn't just stay dead. He rose again on our behalf. And he was a light to the Gentiles. And he sent his disciples out, not just to Jerusalem, not to just Judea, not to just Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And that includes us. This is good news of great joy for everybody. Shepherds responded appropriately to such good news. Spread it. That's what you do with good news. You spread it. And if it's good news of great joy, and you don't feel great joy spreading it, reanalyze what you believe about the gospel. I don't want you to say, well, it's good news of great joy, so I need to act happy. Quit acting happy and get happy. Like it's good news. If you're not joyful about it, you need to get your Bible out and realize how big it is. Like, like we've been saying, quit faking it because people see right through that. You ever seen somebody ring the Salvation Army bell that's ringing a bell which should be happy, but they're not ringing it very happy? Saw it at Safeway not long ago. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen. You need to give extra money today. I mean, this, this lady's having a rough time. And I don't know how many times she had to do the bell. But it was like, ching, ching, ching. And, you know, it's like, oh, just put the bell away. It's insulting now what you're doing. It's sadder. I've never heard bells be sad, but that is sad bells. <laughs> jingle bells, sad jingle bells. T and I did Christmas ha- uh, Salvation Army Kettle one time at, at Sobeys. And that whole time, I made it my mission to ring the bell and beat to the Christmas carols that were playing. That was my thing. And I, but, you know, I only had to do it for an hour, so maybe that's why I had such exuberance while I did it. 
But she knows people see right through it. When, you, when you're acting excited and you're doing excited things, but you're not excited, it, it, it doesn't come across to anybody. This is just another philosophy. It's another religion you're trying to push down my throat. But if you have real joy because of the real gospel, which has really saved you, really changed you, and really made you alive, it comes with joy, and you don't have to fake it anymore. It's for real. These shepherds were not just saying, oh, why'd they have to appear to us? Why do the angels have to show up to us? That means we have to go witnessing. You know, the scripture never talks about going witnessing, it talks about being a witness. And everywhere you go, you witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't say, hmm, Saturday is our day to go witnessing. No, you're a believer. Tell everybody. With joy. I don't have to tell everybody, anybody until Saturday. We're doing witnessing slash bottle drive. It's our designated time to tell people about Jesus. If you want the same joy we have, read this track. Something about four laws or something. Shepherds are like, oh, why us? I put Saturday's full already. Ugh. No, it brought them joy. You see, when the, when the gospel is preached properly in the power of the Spirit with the life that's included, it automatically brings joy, which automatically makes you happy to spread it to other people. That's one of the best things about new believers. You know what I love about new believers? The ones that really believe is that they get more people saved in a month than I see any other, anybody else do. They get real excited, and they naturally do what believers do. You just spread it. You tell your friends. New believers are some of the best for inviting friends, telling friends and sharing it with. Why? Because it's exciting again. Because life came. These shepherds weren't ashamed. They went around telling people, I don't care how crazy you think that a bunch of, bunch of uh, an army appeared in the sky and talked to us and there was light everywhere. I swear I saw it in the sky that one time. There's a light. No, my truck stopped. And there's just light looking right down at me. He said, glory to God. I said, well, shoot, glory to God. And then he told me all about that. He said, he said, the son has been born for you. You're going to find him. I said, in a manger, that's no place for a baby. But I swear I saw it. You know? They did. They brought, but they went ahead and they brought the news. They checked it out to see that it was true. They confirmed it. And they told everybody about it. It's good news. Great joy for everybody. That's how the gospel is meant to be preached. As good news. Good news becomes good news. And you may say, well, does that mean I have to sugarcoat everything? No, you tell it like it is. Do you know part of the good news for me is that I did fall short of the glory of God and I was sinful, I needed a Savior? If you'd stopped there, it wouldn't be good news. But it's good news for me to know I needed a Savior and He came. Good news sometimes includes stark reality. Because if you don't think you need a Savior, you're not real excited when one comes. Sometimes good news includes you need Him. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. That includes me, that includes you. But here's the good news. He came that you'd have life. He came that you'd have it abundantly. He died, shed His blood for you, that a new covenant would be 
Cut, put in the heavenlies, and put in your heart. I want to read you something in Romans chapter 10. Just to wrap this all up in a nice little Christmas bow. Romans chapter 10. This is one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible because as some of you may know, you may call it the Roman road or whatever, this is the, one, of the big, one of the big sections that talks about salvation, just what's involved with it. But I want you to see what it says in verse 8 of chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Where is the word? It's in two places. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. If the word's in your heart, it should also be in your mouth. You say, well, this is just a private thing. My faith is a private thing. Really? I don't know how much you, th- you believe what you say you believe then. If I really believed I had the cure to cancer, I wouldn't just say it's a private thing. I privately have the cure to cancer. If I ever get it, I'm cured. You'd share it with everyone you knew because it's good news. If you really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you really believe that he came to give life to those that were dead, if you really believe he came to bring people back to God that were separated by their own sin, if you really believe the difference between heaven and hell is Jesus Christ, then you're not going to keep that from people. You would like to share that. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. This nice little which we are preaching is the same word that's used when the angels brought good news. He says this in verse eight, verse 9, sorry. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture said, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Does that sound like good news to you? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's big, isn't it? How? Then shall they call upon in him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What's a preacher? You think, oh, you're a preacher. You know, you're a preacher. Maybe you're not called to teach the church every week, but you're a preacher. A preacher is a proclaimer of good news. A preacher proclaims something, he heralds something, and all of us get get pulled into that category. We are proclaimers of something awesome. We get to proclaim good news of great joy for all the people. Verse 15, it says this, And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those, and there's that word again, who bring glad tidings of what? Good things. Glad tidings. What does glad mean to you? Glad, joy, right? Glad tidings. You know, in fact, it says, I'm reading it on the old numeric center. It says here, good news of good things. I like that. Who bring good news of good things. Do you think of that? Do you, does that verse apply to, the, to you when you're sharing the gospel? Does that seem like what you're doing? 
Because if not, you might be doing it wrong. Here's what it's supposed to be. Your feet are beautiful because you bring the good news of good things. That good news, guys, that good news is not just, you know, carry on, keep calm and carry on. That good news is not just you can. If you try hard enough, you can do it. That good news is Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, thank God, the life. Don't ever miss an opportunity to share that. Don't ever miss an opportunity to spread that. And God, it should be just as the angels brought it, just as the shepherds took it from there. Good news. Great joy for everybody. Jesus first appeared, and let's remember this, Jesus first appeared to the lowest of the low. There is nobody beneath and nobody above the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's going to be people in your life you feel like you have nothing in common with. You ever ministered to somebody that was homeless? You ever ministered to somebody that came from the wrong side of the tracks? You ever ministered to somebody that just came from a different culture than you? There's that automatic feeling of, what do I have to say to them? I'll tell you what you have. You have good news. If it was good enough for the shepherds, it's good enough for everybody. Now, the same scripture that tells us that says if you have something to give to them, you give it. It says don't just say, be warm and filled. If you have something for them, give it to them. But as Peter and John said, they said to that man, silver and gold, we don't have. But what we have, we give you. There's times where you don't, you don't have something to give. But let me tell you, no matter, you, you give them $10,000, it's still not worth how much this is worth. This gospel is so much better than anything else. So do I believe in giving to the poor? Absolutely I do. But I also believe in bringing the gospel to them. Because when, when we get to stand before the judge of all creation, it's not going to help you how much money you have. It's not going to ha- help you how much food you had. It's whether or not you knew Jesus. So bring them a sandwich. Bring them food. Bring them money. But bring them the gospel. To everybody. Good news. Great joy for everybody.